and turn with me to Luke chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there are actually some green ones on the table back there available, and, and we'd love for you to take one. Uh, that is our our gift to you. We, we are we are creatures of the Word. We are we are bound to the Scripture. So if you don't have one at home, I would love for that to be uh, your gift. Please take that with you. We're continuing today uh, in our in our series on the parables of Jesus. So far, we've looked at the at the Gospel of Mark, and we saw the parable of the sower. We've looked at the Gospel of Matthew and saw the parable of the weeds. And then today, we are looking in the Gospel of Luke to see the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Our aim this morning uh, is, is we are just continuing to try to tune our hearts uh, to the teaching of Jesus in and, and during his earthly ministry, uh, trusting that, that his word in times of old still reverberates, it still resonates in our time today, it still shakes in many ways the foundations of the earth and that it is so countercultural to everything we know and everything we we sort of desire in and of ourselves, and, and so it does. It shakes our foundations even today. And so we want to hear from Him. And we want to be drawn closer to Him today. And so I'd invite you now to stand with me, uh, and we're going to give attention to the words of Jesus in Luke 18. This is Luke 18. We're going to start in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray together. Father, I would ask you now, to speak to us, to do what only you can do, that you would pierce into our hearts, that you would open up our minds, that you would, that you would just speak so that we might hear you, that you would shout so that our deaf ears might receive what you would say to us. God, I pray in all ways that you would move the distractions of this world out of the way, that you would, you would help us to just be here, just in this moment, just be in this place with your people hearing from you. I pray that you would move me out of the way in that. God, don't let my weakness, don't let my inability or lack of, of ability do anything to distract from what you would do here today. I, I pray that we would humbly come to you with expectant hearts because you want to show us more of yourself. So do that now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You, you can be seated. You know, prejudice is a is a difficult thing. I want to say that, and 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 I know as soon as I even mention uh, the idea of prejudice, people might be tended to think I'm about to go crazy political on this or something. I, I'm not. I assure you, 
that, but, it, but it's one of those things that Jesus addresses with great consistency and still in spite of his consistency. Prejudice is, is difficult for us, even as his people. It's difficult for a couple of reasons, not the least of which is the fact that, that we all struggle with it, uh, with various implicit, various explicit prejudices of our hearts. Not all of these are on the same level, but I think we can all agree that all of them are destructive on some level. And this is how it happens. We do it in ways that, that conform to the presuppositions that we hold in our heart. And so maybe most of these are simply rooted in the context. They're rooted in the background that we have, rooted in the culture into which we were raised. Some of them we do without even realizing it, right? We do it with natural elements like gender. Uh, We do it with race. Uh, We do it without even realizing it, doing it with things that we have no control over. Uh, We also do it with with chosen elements like schools or sadly in the South, sports teams, all right? We, We have our prejudices related to things that, that, that really are very superficial. We do it with things like the neighborhoods we live in. We do it with global and regional geography. We do it with religion. The truth is that uh, we even do it within the scope of evangelicalism today. We have these prejudices, prejudices that we hold, most of which come from some lesson learned or some perceived reality. The, the odds are, and, and I... The odds are that you're not only guilty of prejudice, but that you've also felt the sting of being prejudiced against. I know that however I am outwardly described, however one of you might describe me to someone else, I know that it will be received differently by different groups of people. Some will see me as a white man, uh, and that will carry certain presuppositions along with it. Some will see me as a southerner, and that brings a whole nother list of presuppositions. The truth is, and I want you to hear this, is that if all I am is a white, male, southern, middle-class, conservative Presbyterian who graduated from the University of South Carolina and is uh, predisposed to yelling things like go Cox from time to time, it's a miracle with that description there's anyone left to even talk to me. I am offensive to someone at some point just by virtue of my experience in life. You see, we all have our prejudices. All of them are destructive. And in our parable today, Jesus is playing off of some of the cultural prejudices of that day, cultural concepts and assumptions that we, that we might actually miss because of our own experience in the present. You see, if you have read through the Gospels, if you as an individual have been in church or just on your own read through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you've read through them, you know that Jesus doesn't typically have a lot of good information for the Pharisees. Like, it doesn't go well with them. He's rarely, if ever, commending the Pharisees to a group of people. Just in Matthew chapter 23 alone, he pronounces seven woes which are bad, he pronounces woes against the Pharisees as a group. He, he, he calls them hypocrites, he calls them blind guides, he calls them, he calls them whitewashed tombs. That's not a compliment, right? That, that's like, you're a really clean haven of death. I mean, that's never a way of complimenting someone. He says that they outwardly appear righteous to others, but within they are full of hypocrisy and lawness. lawlessness. Sorry. So again, 
Rarely do we see Jesus complimenting the Pharisees. He's not going around singing their praises. And the sad truth is that it's, that's fairly consistent with the way he is throughout his ministry on earth. But, but that is not consistent with the cultural view of the day of, of how the people in that time would have looked at the Pharisees. You see, Jesus is countercultural in his, in his woes against the Pharisees. That is not how people would have thought of them in first century Judea. And that's what makes this parable really so shocking. And, and so what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to look at the prayer of the Pharisee. And, and as we look at it, I want you to hear it with new ears. I want you to hear it knowing that the Pharisee, for everyone else sitting there, he is the good guy. He is the hero, Okay. They were the best behaved, they were the most articulate, the most educated, they were the ones that people respected. Uh, The Pharisees were the most pious of all the religious people from from an outward perspective, from everything you would see of them. They were able to not only talk the talk, but they also kind of walked the walk. In fact, Josephus, the first century historian Josephus, said that they were a body of Jews known for surpassing the others in the observance of piety and exact interpretation of the laws. Pharisees were the leaders of the day, earning the right to speak into their contemporary culture through the living of extremely and extraordinarily pious lives. I mean, just imagine that today. Imagine if the people in authority got there because people respected them for their religiosity, for how well they walked according to God's law. This seems so far removed from our world today. The people listening to Jesus would have come to the table with the basic assumption that the Pharisee is the hero of the story. Now, along with that, okay, we need to know that the tax collectors, they're the bad guys. They were a despised group of sellouts working as agents of an occupying pagan government in order to exact taxes from their own people to fund the occupying enemy. And the Jewish tax collectors were the worst of all because they were cheating their own people out of money in order to make themselves rich. They were traitors of the highest degree. They preyed on their society, making money off the work of others. If the greatest commandments, just think about this, if the greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbors as yourselves, they were failing miserably in both. They were rebelling against God by aligning with Rome, and they were robbing their neighbors to line their own pockets. These are the scum of the earth. Do not assume for one second that you would have liked the tax collector. The people listening to Jesus would have come with the prejudice that the tax collector is literally the scourge of their society. And so as we hear these two prayers again, I want you to consider the fact that if you're sitting there with Jesus as a first century Jew, you would have probably loved the Pharisee and you would have despised the tax collector. Look at this again. Look Look back at verses 11 and 12 real quick. This is their prayers. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. 
stop there. You, you see, the Pharisee was your friend. If he was your friend, if he was your cultural icon, if he was the good guy in the story, we could spin this prayer in a positive way. It would be possible. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men. And everybody who thinks he's the greatest guy in the world says, Amen. I mean, the other people there listening are thinking, Absolutely, we are thankful that he's not like other men. This is our example. This is the one we look to. This is the guy who's setting the standard for us. He's our hero. We do this all the time with people, right? We do it with athletes all the time. You got your favorite athletes. They can do anything and you will justify in your mind why they're still the greatest person in the world. We do it with politicians. We do this with all kinds of people. We do it with our children. Listen, two weeks ago, two weeks ago, my youngest child, and he's not in here now so I can say this, my youngest child called one of the volunteers in the nursery an idiot. Like he's cute up here on the floor during the children's thing. I mean, kind of obnoxious, but cute. He, he literally called a nursery worker an idiot. For the record, that's not okay in our house. Like that doesn't go without some attention, all right? Now here's what we could do. Oh, I mean, listen, he, he doesn't know what that means, right? Isn't that the temptation? He doesn't know what he's saying because he's my kid and he's the coolest, He doesn't know what that means. He's just playing around. You know, boys, they say say the silliest things, you know. It is so easy to justify the behavior of those we care about. We do this all the time. And if we consider the crowd that Jesus is addressing, the prayer of this Pharisee did nothing but reaffirm to them the goodness and the greatness of the Pharisee. Because they were some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's the crowd. They're people who think if we do what's right, God will love us. If we are clean enough, if we are smart enough, if we are pretty enough, God will be grateful for us. They thought they were really good. They thought they were, here's how I would say, they thought they were, if not good, they were good enough. Because I think that's how most of us tend to think of it. I'm good enough. I'm not as bad as... Well, who? The tax collector. Not as bad as that guy. And this guy, the Pharisee, he's one of the best. He's the, he is the alpha best of all of the people, of all of the Pharisees. But there's a problem. While we certainly ought to be thankful uh, for the grace of God in keeping us from sin, we, we ought to express that. Yes, we ought to be thankful for the restraining of sin in our lives, but there is a problem with this prayer. If there was a theme, if there's a theme uniting every word that he says, it's simple. It's I. There are five eyes, five eyes just in these two verses, five eyes in this entire little prayer that he prays. It is completely egocentric. In his mind and in the minds of those listening to Jesus that day, this man is a saint. This is how he views himself. He's good. He's not, he's not a thief. He's not an adulterer. He's not, at least in his own mind, he, he's not unrighteous. That's what that unjust there means. That's what he said before God and all those listening. Listen, on the surface, this is the type of guy that you want to have as your friend. He won't steal your stuff and he's not gonna hit on your wife, right? I mean, that's, that's a pretty good guy. If I'm not careful, honestly, I just might start to like him. But in the end, sitting here today, 
with a little bit of knowledge about the Pharisees in general, we hear this, well, we hear it for what it is. What we hear today is summarized in one word, pride. We hear the sense of self-worth coming from the Pharisee. He's effectively standing there offering to God his resume. In fact, it's almost as if he's saying, God, you'd, you'd be really lucky to have me on your team either through an inherent righteousness or an earned righteousness in his heart, he believes that he has earned the love of God. He has merited God's favor. You see, pride says, this is, pride says, I am worthy. Pride says, since I am worthy, you owe me. And then pride says, me being here, my being here is really good for you. And you see anything missing in this story, by the way, we don't normally critique Jesus's parables and say, what's he forgetting to say? In, in, this, in this parable, at least outwardly, consider this, we don't see anyone in the crowd rise up and confront the man on it. Nobody contradicts the Pharisee. Nobody speaks out and says, well, actually, you should humble yourself. Nobody there does that. The idea that we have here as Jesus is telling the story is that the entire crowd is there affirming it. Going, yes, and amen, he is. He's the greatest among us. Nobody calls him on his pride because he's the type of guy, he's the type of guy you want on your board of directors. He's the type of guy you want on your list of references because anybody who's a friend of Joe Pharisee is good enough for me. And that's exactly how the crowd of listening to Jesus that day would have thought. That I want to be in this guy's camp because it goes well for those who are in this guy's camp. Now let's look at the tax collector. Look back at verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's it. That's the prayer. In contrast to the Pharisee standing in the middle of the court, boasting of his own personal piety and righteousness. We have this picture of the tax collector. He is over in the corner, hiding in the shadows, afraid to even show his face. He carries tremendous guilt. He carries tremendous shame. He, you may know this already, but a more accurate translation of this is, God be merciful to me, the sinner. God be merciful to me, the sinner. Whereas the good people, people like the Pharisee, dress a certain way, vote a certain way, attend a certain school, live in a certain neighborhood, run with a certain crowd, whatever they do, whatever the Pharisee does, it is certainly not what this tax collector does. It's not what this guy would be about. They don't live in his neighborhood. They don't eat with his kind. They don't associate with him because he's a bad guy. He even says it himself. He's a sinner. The crowd listening to Jesus is not feeling sorry for this man. They came to the table prejudiced against him at the start. And the tax collector, if you hear his prayer, he doesn't disagree with the people in the room, does he? He doesn't. In fact, he makes the declaration himself. He affirms what everybody there is thinking. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And again, the crowd goes, yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what that guy is. He's the sinner. He's saying, I am, his confession is, I am everything that these people say that I am. I'm everything they say. In fact, I'm I'm worse than what they even know about me. 
He doesn't point at the Pharisee and say, thank you, God, that I am not like this man. You know, no, you see, he understands that from an outward perspective, there is no comparison to be made by which he comes out looking good. And so he pleads. He pleads for God's mercy. And that word means that he is begging for God to be propitious to him. I know that propitious is a word that we don't use a whole lot, but what it means is that he is pleading for pardon. He's pleading to be pardoned. He understands that there is nothing good by which he can barter with God. He has nothing to offer. God, if you do this for me, I'll, I'll never steal again. God, if you do this for me, I'll never cheat again. God, if you show me mercy, I will never take advantage of those less fortunate than me again. God, if you show me mercy, I will never fill in the blank. What is he bartering with in this moment? Sin? You see, he has nothing to barter with except for more baggage that actually needs to be propitiated, that needs to be pardoned. All he carries, all that he brings with him to the table is his sin. He he sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1, where he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Now stop there for just a second. Who did Jesus come to save? He says, I came to save sinners. Paul says, he came to save sinners. That's what he said. That's what the living and active word of God tells us. It says that Jesus came to save sinners. He makes no, he makes it explicitly clear what his purpose in coming was. And then Paul, sounding much like our friend the tax collector, says of himself, after saying that Jesus came to save sinners, he says this, of whom I am the foremost. Paraphrase Paul just a little bit. It's like he's saying, Jesus came to save me because I am the sinner. And so here, here we go. We, we have the prideful Pharisee who, who because of our cultural conditioning and the resulting prejudices of our hearts, we're convinced is the good guy. And we have the broken tax collector who, who we hate because of all he represents. And here comes the twist. Look back at verse 14. Remember this, you love the Pharisee, you hate the tax collector, and here's what Jesus says. Jesus concludes this parable saying, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And in that moment, you go, what? You are not okay with this. See, we are, we sit here today and go, yeah, of course. God saves tax collectors all the time. He did it with a wee little man, right? We love it when he does that stuff, right? And the Pharisees are bad. We even tell each other, man, don't be a Pharisee. Don't be a Pharisee, you know. Those are, I mean, nobody really defines what that means. We just kind of say it. Don't be a Pharisee. But they? This would have been shocking to them. This would have shattered every idea that they had of where this story was going. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Seven words. Seven 
words. This man, the tax collector, this enemy of God, he says seven words. That's all that he can muster to speak to God. And Jesus says that he is justified. This is one of the great plot twists in in storytelling history, okay? I, I tried a dozen different pop cultural examples for how to connect that. All I can tell you is this is worse than Bruce Willis being dead the whole time, okay? This is, this is greater than that. This is, nobody expected this. There's nobody sitting there going, what? and in fact, I guarantee you that if I was sitting there, I'd say, what did he say? Did you write that down? Are you sure? Not, Jesus has identified what he's done here. He has identified their prejudices without calling them out directly. And he's opened their eyes to understand the nature of, of the grace and the mercy of God in Christ. This reminds me so much of the story of of King David and and Nathan the prophet in in 2 Samuel 12. If you remember that story at all, David has, he has sinned with Bathsheba, right? He has seen her, he has taken her, he has arranged now for her her husband Uriah the Hittite to to be placed in a position where it is a virtual certainty that he will be killed. Uh, He does, in fact, die in battle. His blood is on David's hands, and God sends Nathan to David. And in that moment, if you want to look there, you can. It's 2 Samuel 12. Nathan tells David a parable. That's exactly what uh, what Nathan does. This is 2 Samuel 12, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And when he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children, it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. So aside from a little bit of a weird relationship with the lamb, all right, just... uh, a little bit too emotionally attached to the lamb, maybe. But it's a parable, okay? So don't, don't be too literal. Um, now, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man and had him come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, this man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. You are the man David, like the listeners in our gospel of Luke in this parable, um, he has failed to understand his place within the story. And he makes the same mistake that we might make if we were in that situation. We're told that his anger was greatly kindled against the man. And so declaring that the rich man deserves to die, he is demonstrating that even though he is God's chosen king, that even though he is certainly a man who worshiped God, he is still at times blind to his own sin because he is by nature prejudiced towards himself. And so Nathan pronounces the twist. Just like Jesus, this man went up justified. Nathan says, you are the man. And so the question for us is, 
who am I in this parable today? Can you imagine if the story that Jesus told, if the parable that Jesus told had, had continued for just a moment? Like, like it doesn't, but just imagine for just a second those two men leaving the temple that day. Like, can you see them walking out? I mean, we're going to do it in a few minutes. We're going to walk out of here. Just imagine them walking out of the temple. One of them is self-assured. He's standing with his head held high, uh, standing on his nearly flawless outward credentials. After all, In the Pharisees' mind, these people are really lucky that I was here today. These people should be really glad that they got to be in my presence, that some of my holiness just might rub off on them, and they might one day be more like me. God must be really proud to claim me as his child. He walks out like the star of the show. He is the hero of the story that everyone sitting there thinks that he is. But we also have the other man. We have the tax collector. He walks out of there a little bit differently. He walks out of there repentant. He walks out with a contrite heart, resting on the mercy of God alone. His head is not held high, but it is not defeated either. And that's important. He sees the other people that are there praying. And sympathy for them fills his heart. Perhaps he prays for them because he knows the burden of sin so deeply. He encourages the lowly to confess their sin and to trust in the grace and the mercy of God because he has felt and because he has received the grace and the mercy of God in Christ. King David had his eyes opened by that parable that Nathan told him. And in Psalm 51 and we got a recording of the prayer that David prayed after that, after that event. He prayed, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Do you hear it? He says, have mercy on me. He's praying the same prayer that the tax collector was praying in the parable. It's the same cry. It's the same cry for mercy. He says, according to your mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. This is how David prays. That my sin is ever before me. He is pleading for mercy. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And that's the principle for us to carry from here. Like perhaps you came in here today feeling a bit like the Pharisee. You do good things. I mean, people like you. I'm trying not to look at any one person specifically here. You do great things and people like you. And this is a church plant. So of course we're lucky to have you here. I mean, you're gracing us with your presence. You don't steal. You don't commit adultery. God should be really glad. Man, he, he should be really glad to have someone as good as you on his team. I mean, he hit the jackpot when he got you. Be careful. Be careful. I think, I think we all have the tendency to drift into that lane every once in a while. The Pharisee left that place 
Here's the sad truth. The Pharisee left that place today unaccepted by God, unjustified, and still under the wrath of God. Jesus says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. That idea of being humbled that Jesus says there has more to do with humiliation than it has to do with walking in humility. He who exalts himself is going to be humiliated. But, okay, that's one of the greatest words in all of scripture. But, the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He will be lifted up. He will be set on the high places. And now we see, or we should, we should see the image of Christ in our minds. We see the holy lamb of God, the sinless one. We see him walking on the same path that the Pharisee and the tax collector were walking on in the parable. He's walking up that dusty road and he's, and he's carrying something on his back and, and we see him. We see him stripped. We see him stretched out. We see him nailed to a cross and then raised as a spectacle for everyone to point at and laugh. You see, we see our Holy One humiliated. And we know that it is on our behalf that it is for our sake that he was sacrificed that day. I was talking with one of my kids this week and somehow we landed on Philippians 2. Uh, I want you to listen to this. Just listen and, and let this close out our time together. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As we leave here today, I mean as we walk out of this place, do you believe that you are God's gift to this world? Or are the grace and the mercy of God in Christ his gift to you? See, that, this parable begs that question of us. It begs that question of us because we are the ones who have received mercy. We are the ones who have hopefully at some point beat on our breast and claimed, God, have mercy on me the sinner. Yeah. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, for this day. God, you know how you have worked in my heart this week and convicted and corrected and reproved and rebuked and done all of those things. And I am grateful for that. Lord, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts this week. I pray that you would give us the humility of Christ, the willingness to suffer so that others might live. 
that we might give, that others might receive, that we might be willing to set aside our rights, to lay aside our privileges. Lord, that we would humble ourselves. Yeah, I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.